Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to read for you a passage of scripture that's an unusual passage. I expect most of you have heard it, though you probably haven't heard it too many times, but once you hear it, you never forget it. It's in a book that nobody ever reads anymore much in the Old Testament called the book of Ecclesiastes. And when I get to some of these little books in the Old Testament, I remember a preacher that I had speak for me one Sunday, and he said when he got up to read his scripture, my text is in the book of Zephaniah this morning if I can find it. Now, it's in the Old Testament. And it's the book of Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate time for war, and a time for peace. The scripture there, I think, is very clear that there are times that are appropriate for certain things, and that all time is not appropriate for all things. There's a passage in the Old Testament, likewise, that emphasizes this. It's in the 55th chapter of the book of Isaiah a line which perhaps you have heard, where the prophet speaks and says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. The implication being very clear that there is a time when men should seek God because he can be found. There are other times when though they seek him, they may not be able to find him. There are times when men should call upon God because if they call at that time, there will be a divine response. But there may be times when they will find that they are not able to call. It is not the opportune time. It is not the time for God to come to them. Now, the scripture indicates there is a difference between times. And so he says, there is a time for this and there is a time for that. And wise is the man who knows what his time is at the moment and seizes it and uses it for that end. If you go to college in a place like Asbury, one of the things that you will find as you hear chapel speakers speak is they will tell you, they will talk about the Greek language and the New Testament and the difference in different words that are translated differently in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are two words for time that illustrate this. One is a word from which we get chronometer or chronology, and it simply means time, and the emphasis is on extent. Every every minute has 60 seconds, and every hour has 60 minutes, and every day has 24 hours, 
and there is no differentiation in the time. One minute is as good as another. But there is another word which is used in the New Testament, which is the Greek word kairos, and that word which is used for time has to do with an appropriateness about that time for a specific purpose. It is like there is a day when that flower can unfold and do so much, and on another day it can unfold and do a little more. And on another day, it may come to complete openness and to complete fullness of development. And then on another day, it will die away. But there is a difference in those days because there is something in what God's plan and purpose for you or for me that we can do some things at that moment that can never be done again. And if we do not do them, then we will have lost our opportunity. Now... That's the reason that we have a special interest in young people like those that come, like you that come to the President's Conference. Because we are convinced that at this stage of your life, you are in a time that has special potential within it. And if it is seized, life will never be the same, the world will never be the same. But if it is lost, all mankind will suffer loss because of it. If If I were to pick out the most crucial years in any person's life, I think I would have difficulty doing it. But let me say I would have no difficulty in saying that those years between, say, 15 and 25 are the years that will determine the character of your life under all probability and how far you go with the gifts that God has given you. And so, in the President's Conference, we look for those students who are in that period of 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 that not yet, have not yet reached college and they are beginning now to make, get into that period of their lives when they will make the most significant decisions and the most determinative decisions of their lives. I want to talk tonight just very briefly and simply and friend to friend about some realities of life for you, where when you make a decision, you decide a lot more than you may think you're deciding. You know, that's one of the unfortunate or one of the marvelous things, whichever way you want to look at it. If the decision is made rightly, it's one of the marvelous things. If the decision is made wrongly, it's one of the tragic things. There is something about life that there's some decisions that when you make them, you're probably making a lot more decisions than you ever think you're making. You make that one decision, and then that will decide a whole string of other decisions. So that if you make it rightly, you will have already decided a whole string of decisions rightly. If you make it wrongly, you will automatically, in that one decision, have already made a whole string of other decisions wrongly. These decisions are not separable oftentimes, and we make one, and then that begets a whole string of other decisions. One of these is, it's during this period that you decide whether you'll go to college, and if you do, where you will go. And I want to say, as far as I'm concerned, that is one of the most significant decisions that you will ever make. If you decide not to go to college, there is a whole string of options that will never be open to you. You know that. One thing about it, if you decide never to go to college, there's no chance that you can ever be a doctor. 
If you decide never to go to college, one thing about it, you will never be able to teach in a college like Asbury College or in a high school like the place that you, that you go. Uh, there are things involved when you make that decision that will determine how many options you have in life. And you know one of the things that as we get older we get most concerned about with young people? Young people oftentimes will make a decision that closes off their possibilities for the future and limits very drastically what can ever come out of that life. And so one of the things we hope is that in this period between, say, 15 and 19, you will make those decisions that will keep open all the options possible for you so that you, not knowing yet what God's plan for your life may be, you will not miss his best plan for you because you've made a decision that limits your possibilities. It's amazing how many things are decided when you decide, say, where you will go to college. You will determine probably the courses of instruction that are available before you, the possible majors, the possible professions, but in addition to that, and maybe far more significant, it will probably determine the models that you set in front of you or that you have set in front of you from which you draw your own plan. You know, something that came as a shock to me one day was what dreams are made out of. You know, we dream the impossible dream. You know, we sing about that. But do you know that's as unrealistic as can be? Do you know the one thing you never dream about is something that is impossible? If you've never seen it, you'll never dream about it. If you think about what putters up your dreams at night, you have to admit that the things that fill your dreams are things that basically, they are basically elements that you have seen, read about, some way or other they have entered your consciousness. So that mentally you've seen them, and because you've seen them, you can dream about them. But you see, if you've never seen them, you can. You know, there was no black in this country in 1855 that ever dreamed of being president of the United States. There was no way a black in 1855 could dream about becoming president of the United States. If you can't see, you don't dream about being an artist. You dream about things that you've seen. And in the years that you're in college, there will be presented to you a string of models. And the chances are that during the four years that you're in college, you're going to see a model somewhere and say, I'd like to be like that. And you choose one college and you'll get one set of models and you choose another and you will get another. That's one of the reasons that I, as an administrator, am always very happy about our chapels at Asbury. They're required. A lot of schools don't have required chapels. I'm convinced that it's one of the best educational features at Asbury, that every week our student body has to, has to come to chapel and the probabilities are that in every week there will be three excellent models that will be run in front of a person. Maybe a preacher, maybe a missionary, it may be a doctor, it may be a teacher. I have a friend who's the president of a, of a university. He's a graduate of Asbury. 
And I said, how did you ever get into higher education? He said, I was sitting in the back corner of Hughes, back on the right from the pulpit. And he said, a professor of history at Asbury that never spoke a great many times, stood up and spoke, and as he spoke, something in my heart said, you could do that. And now he's a university president. That's the kind of thing that opens up when you make that kind of decision. In college is where you probably will determine the friends that you have for the rest of your life, the friends that shape your values and set your horizons. Now, we debated for a long time whether we should use these two days to try to sell young people who came to us on Asbury. And we tried it a few times and felt sort of unclean about it. It isn't our business to manipulate young people. We're not God. We don't have that right. God is the one who's supposed to determine where you go to school and what you do with your life, and it's not our business to manipulate it. But it is our business if we can set in front of you some of the picture so that you can see what four years of college can be, that you can pray more intelligently about where Christ wants you to go to school, and then perhaps you can make a more intelligent decision. When I came to Asbury College out of the swamps of North Carolina, down in the eastern part of North Carolina, you couldn't get in or out of my hometown without going through Green Swamp, Black Swamp, Bear Swamp, Rat Swamp, or two other swamps. I've forgotten the names of them now. But uh, down there with the alligators, I'd never seen anything of a larger world. And I came to Asbury and found the fellow sitting next to me in chapel had grown up in Korea, China, and Japan. The fellow in the room opposite me in my dormitory had grown up in India. The fellow down the hall, one came from Illinois, one came from New York. You see, in a student body like this, when you graduate, the probabilities are that you will have personal friends in 30 to 40 of the United States and maybe more. And the probabilities are that you will have friends from all over the world. And the end result is that you walk out feeling that the world is a part of your life instead of being circumscribed. Let me illustrate. You go to the University of Kentucky, and by law, 85% of the students are from the 120 counties in the state of Kentucky. And you come to Asbury, and 88% of the students come from outside Kentucky and from 40-some states other than Kentucky. And you see how much broader the education is? Probabilities are, while you're at college, that you'll pick out the girl or the fellow that you're going to live with the rest of your life. And do you know any decision more important than that? I'll come back to that in a moment. It's while you're in this lifespan that you pick out what your life work is going to be. And there are not many decisions more important than that, are there? Because, you see, I do not believe that you will ever really be happy until you find the thing you're fitted for. And the thing you can do with joy, and the thing you can do with a sense of fulfillment. Personal inner satisfaction. 
You know, I believe God has something for you to do so that you don't wait for the clock to get to five o'clock so you can quit and go home and do something else. I have great pity in my heart for the person who has to live that way. You see, I believe God has a place for you where you go to bed at night waiting for the sun to come up in the morning so you can get back at it again because it's what you want to do. You know, it's the thing you were made to do. It's the thing where you find your fulfillment. And it's the place where you're most creative. And you see, then, life takes on a radically different complexion. And no man or no woman is a whole woman or whole man who does not have a sense of being made for something and having found that work, that role for which he or she was made. There's where it is that we have that sense of fulfillment. I've accomplished what he put me here to do. Now, let me go back to what I mentioned a few moments ago. It's in this span of time that you choose who your life partner will be, your husband or your wife. And I'd like to talk very very bluntly about that and how crucial it is. You will never make a more important decision in terms of the effectiveness of your life or the fruitfulness of it. You make that decision wrongly, and there will be a whole string of things that will never be possible for you, and all of them good. And you make that decision rightly, and there will be a whole string of things that you'll never be bothered with that are bad, and that decision will be settled by getting the person who is the person of God's choice for you. You see, I believe God does have somebody for you. I believe God is interested in that. I've always been interested in the arithmetic of the scripture. Did you ever notice how many verses there are devoted to the creation of the world? If I remember correctly, there are 20, let's see, uh, 35 in one chapter, maybe in 21 in the other. That, what would that be? 56 verses to tell the story of the creation of the world. Now, let me tell you, in the first chapter... Of Genesis, there are 31 verses, and five of those verses have to do with the creation of man and woman. In the second chapter, which is the creation story, told from a different perspective, one verse tells about the creation of Adam, and seven verses tell about the creation of Eve. You suppose she's seven times as important as we are, fellows? At least it lets you know the divine interest in that activity, doesn't it? But let me, let me mention a little more about the arithmetic of Genesis. You know, Genesis is where the seed plot of the Bible is. The foundation of everything is found in the book of Genesis. You know what the longest chapter in the book of Genesis is? It's the story of where Abraham turned to his trusty servant and said, Put your hand under my thigh and swear an oath before God that you will do what I tell you to do. I want you to promise me that you will not let my son marry a girl from his hometown. And I want you to go back to the land from which I came where there are people that know our God and find there a wife for my son. And the longest chapter in the book of Genesis is getting a wife for Isaac. 
67 verses devoted to getting Rebecca. I ran through the book of Genesis and found that almost 10%, better than 8% of the book of Genesis is devoted to getting wives for three fellows. Adam, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, are you going to tell me God isn't interested in that? He's supremely interested in that. Because you see, you make the wrong choice and everything that God has planned for you will be in danger. And you make the right choice and the possibilities of all that God has for you will be magnificently increased. How important that you make the right choice in where you go and whom you're going to meet and to whom you're going to be exposed. Because this is what determines a lot of your life. You know, one of the things that young people don't understand is that young people have different potentials and grow differently because of that. Oftentimes, two young people that at 16 seem very compatible at 18 are beginning to pull apart, and at 20 the distance is further, and at 25 they're out of step. And at 30, you know what he's like? It's like having a, an airplane that's got a jet motor on one side and a prop propeller engine on the other. Can you feature what would happen with an airplane that had a jet engine on one wing and a propeller-driven engine on the other? This one never could make over about 300 miles an hour at best. And this one, 570, 580. And what happened? You put together a plane like that, and before it crashed, it would spend its lifetime running in circles. And I want to say, there are worlds of people that make the wrong choice, and that's what they find. So these are the years when you make choices that determine so much of the rest of your life. Let me say, I find a lot of people that say, well, I don't believe a girl needs an education as much as a man does. I'm going to educate, we're going to educate our sons, but our daughters, main thing is to get them married. You know. I want to say, if I had to choose between educating girls and men, girls and fellows, I'd choose a thousand times out of a thousand to educate the women instead of the men. They're much more important. I believe it. And that conviction has deepened with me over the years as I've watched homes and watched families and seen what happens in society. You see, a father in a home is really quite a transient. He comes and goes. My children know that. One of our jokes for years was about the fellow who was home so little, his children called him Uncle Daddy. And my children for a long time called me Uncle Daddy. But while I was coming and going, Elsie was the one who set the patterns for the home the patterns intellectually as well as otherwise. You know, I ended up when I was 30 years of age at Princeton studying languages and 38 went to Brandeis and studied 
ancient Greek and all Hebrew and Babylonian and all the rest of this junk. And after all that was over with, one day I was rummaging through a bunch of my mother's papers and found her report cards and how she studied classical Greek when she was 20 years of age. And I wondered where I got some of my interest in those things. Never knew that I'd picked them up from her. You see, I didn't know that my mother had that kind of background. I remember as a kid when I came bouncing in and looked at her and said, Mother, do you know what an idea is? I just discovered what an idea was. And when she looked back at me and said, Why, yes, why? I was horrified. My heart was broken because I was sure I knew something she didn't know. But you know, it was it was the atmosphere that she had created that made me sensitive to many things without ever knowing that I was being sensitized to them. You owe it to your children. You owe it to your grandchildren. You owe it to all the generations that are to come to be the best developed and trained and educated person you can be for Christ's sake and for his kingdom's sake, for his world's sake. Okay. It's probably during this time that you will decide whether you're going to be a Christian or not. It may be that when you were 10 or 11 or 12, it may be that earlier than that you made a decision for Christ. Okay. I am sure there are many of you who did not. But if you have, I dare say that it will be between the time you're 15 and 25 when you will determine what kind of Christian you're going to be, the quality of Christian you're going to be, how committed you're going to be, and how much of your life you're going to lay on the line for Christ's sake. And you know what will have a lot to do with it? Where you get your training, where you get your education. Now, it's in this period of life that you find God's plan for your life, and if you miss it, the chances are you will have missed it for life. Now, you know that ought not to be too hard for us to understand, because you look around you and you find that nature supports that. There's seasons in nature. I remember how disillusioning that was to me when I was a kid. My father during those depression days, kept three gardens for us. And I had to work in all three of them. Nothing in the world I detested more, though I enjoyed strawberries and having to crawl through a strawberry patch and lift up the leaves and pull with my fingers, getting grit under my fingernails. That was beneath my dignity, pulling the grass out from under those strawberry plants. Or hoeing corn or any of the other things that we had in the garden that he used, that he helped us survive through the Depression with. I never found but one thing in a garden that I enjoyed, and that was watermelons. And my father would bribe me. He'd say, if you'll help me work the gardens, I'll give you a spot to raise watermelons. And so I became quite a watermelon raiser. Loved them. I was sure that the only thing wrong with Christmas was that you couldn't have watermelon for Christmas. And I remember once dreaming, now wouldn't it be great if in October sometime we could plant watermelons and have them show up, you know, at Christmas time? 
Now, where I came from in North Carolina, I'm not from Florida. Now, this Florida bunch here, everything I say doesn't, I don't know, anything I say doesn't fit you because Florida's different from anything else in the world that I know about. But where I came from, there was a season when you could plant corn and get a corn crop back. And if you missed it, you waited 12 months before you could do it again. And I found that I could plant watermelon seed in October and you'd get a little the season was late enough, you might get them to break through the ground, but you'd never have watermelons at Christmas time because the long coming up cold weather and it was all over with. There was a season when you could get your watermelons out, and if you missed it, you waited 12 months. You know, I believe life is made up so that there's seasons, and if you miss them, you don't wait 12 months. Your opportunities are gone forever. You know that's true of all the important things in life. A woman may live 70 years, but there are only 40 of those years that she can give birth to children and reproduce herself. And really, when you get right down to it, it's a much more limited period than that. If that's missed, that's it. There are times when you can do things now, there are a few exceptions, but the exceptions just let you know that all the rest of us are ordinary. I have a friend who is the president emeritus of Asbury Theological Seminary, and I was sitting inside of him at a banquet one night when he was 75 years of age and said, Well, Dr. McPeters, what did you do today? Ah, oh, I said, Dennis, I had a great day. Got up this morning down on Kentucky Lake and fished a while, caught a mess of fish, cleaned the fish, put them in the deep freeze, then I went water skiing. Water skied eight miles. And uh, he said, uh, then I got in my car and drove up here and got here in time for the banquet. Had a great day, Dennis. I said, Doctor, how old are you? He said, 75. I said, when did you learn to water ski? Oh, he said, three years ago. Well, uh, five years later, when he was 80, I met him in the fall over here. And I said, Dr. McPeters, how'd your summer go? Oh, Dennis, had a great summer, great summer. Beat my own record. Never been able to water ski more than 21 miles on one ski before. Beat my own record, water ski 25 miles on one ski this summer. Great summer, Dennis, great summer. I said, Doc, how old are you? He said, 80. And he's still water skiing, 89. Well, uh, I remember when I was half that age. A friend of mine got me up on water skis and took a, sat in the back of his boat as he pulled me and took a film of it. And the next summer, the next winter, during the winter season, he was showing family movies to some of his relatives. And his brother-in-law looked at him as he showed that strip and he said, who's that guy? Is he a preacher? And my friend said, yes, how'd you know that? Well, he said he looks awfully religious. He looks like he's getting ready to meet his maker. And I knew very well I had missed my opportunity at that kind of thing. But that's the way life's put together, isn't it? There's a season, and it comes, and if you grab it, you've got it, and you have it forever. And if you lose it, 
You remember Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus was a blind man. He sat side of a road in Jericho begging. Knew he'd never be able to see. And one day somebody came by and said, Bartimaeus, you won't believe this, but you know what I heard? I heard there's a guy from up here in Galilee that came through here recently. We put some clay on a man's eyes, and when the fellow went and washed, though he had been blind, he could see. Bartimaeus said, that's impossible. That's impossible. Nobody can make a blind man see. And the fellow said, well, that's what I heard. And then one day a fellow came past and looked at Bartimaeus and said, Bartimaeus, you know what I saw the other day? Bartimaeus said, what's that? He said, you know this guy Jesus you've heard about? I was in a group where he was. There was a blind man there. Jesus spoke to him, touched him, and his eyes were opened and he could see. And Bartimaeus said, you're kidding me. And he said, no, Bartimaeus, I was there. He couldn't see. His parents, his mother and father said he'd never been able to see. And suddenly he could see. And then one day Bartimaeus heard a crowd coming. And he listened, wondered what it was. And then suddenly as he listened, he heard that name, Jesus. And as he listened more, he sensed the fact that Jesus was in the middle of that crowd. And suddenly old Bartimaeus got on his feet and began to scream and said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Lively as he could cry. Some people stood around him and said, old blind man, shut up. Quit bothering this crowd. You're making too much noise. He doesn't have time for somebody like you. Bartimaeus screamed a little louder. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, did I hear my name called? And he listened again. He pushed his way through the crowd and looked down at that blind man and said, What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus looked up and said, Lord, if I could receive my sight. And Jesus opened his eyes and he saw. Now, you know why old Bartimaeus upset everybody and kept on screaming when they didn't want him to scream? Bartimaeus had sense enough to know that his moment of opportunity had come. And that if he didn't scream that day, there'd never be any point in screaming again. Because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he never traveled that pathway again. Now you'll never travel these two days again. And we'd like to think that in the time that you have in Wilmore and the time that you have on Asbury's campus, God might have some things to say to you about what his will is in your life. And that during these two days you might open 
like a flower before him and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that whereas perhaps you've sort of kept him shut out and if not shut out completely, maybe kept him on the margin, you'd begin to say, Come, Lord Jesus, even so, come. Come in, take possession of me and give me guidance about what your plan for my life is. And we want to say, if there's one of you that finds God's will for your life, either to have him come into your life as Savior, if there's one of you that finds some of God's will for your life these two days, then all the sweat, work, labor, everything else that's gone into this, the prayer will be well worth it. Will you be open Will you be open to him? Because you see, he's here. Because wherever two or three people meet in his name, there are always three or four. And it's the third or the fourth one that is the important one. And I don't know how many of you there are. There are about 1,270 of us. But if there are 400 of you, that makes 1,670. I want to say there will be 1,671. And he's the important one. So listen to what he has to say.